Yeah, I, I, I wish I held your enthusiasm. I really don't. I, I wanted so badly to care. I wanted so badly to like want it to be good. Hello, welcome to Hat Trick. I am Jordan Dollar Coleman, joined this week by Elliot Tanty. Braden is MIA. He is on hiatus. He is vacationing somewhere on the coast. And, prison. Uh, prison. He's he, in prison. He's, all right, he's in prison. Um, so it'll be Elliot and I. That's what you get. That's what that's that's all you get. Uh, how you doing, Elliot? Uh, good. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad one of us showed up. Um, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk Olympics this week. Um, we've got a couple topics dedicated to that, and then we'll see where it goes. Uh, here we go. Okay, so uh, the Olympics are over. Tokyo 2020 uh, took them an extra year to get it done. Thanks to COVID, but uh, we have now seen the completion of the 2020 games. Uh, lots of great storylines, especially if you're a Canadian fan, uh, which I assume most of our audience is. 24 medals in total, um, more than they won in Rio, more than they won in London. So a great outing for the Canadian Olympians. The majority of these medals won by women, which is also a great storyline we'll dig into. Seven gold, six silvers, and 11 bronzes, and some just you know, very memorable and very exciting performances. Um, we talked a little bit about this earlier on, uh, a couple, uh, I guess, right as the Olympics were getting started. We didn't have a show last week, but the week before, right after the opening ceremonies, we had a conversation just about like, you know, the Olympics are here. What do we think? And uh, now that it's over, Elliot, what are your first takeaways from the Olympics? Well, I think there was a lot going into this, uh, th- these Olympics. We talked about it a little bit, although I tried to shy away from it because I wanted to see if, the, if it was actually going to happen. But there was this whole narrative around like, this is the first international event after COVID-19 and it's going to be all about the world and everyone coming together uh, again after this horrific moment. And, and, and what, there's no better place to do than that than at the Olympics in Olympics 2020 Tokyo. And, uh, and, and they certainly worked that narrative pretty hard going into the Olympics. And, and there was lots of people talking about that. Um, and so I, you know, that was kind of cognizant in my head throughout these entire games. And I just never really got the sense that that actually occurred. I still got the sense that it was, the world is still a little bit weird. People are still sheepish. You know, there was concern from people in Japan about even having um, the games. There were lots of good stories, like you said, and I don't want to take away from that. But there was a bit of an expectation going into this that this was going to be the world building event, uh, you know, of the decade at least. And 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 I just that just didn't happen for me. And I don't think I got that sense. Um, and so I'm starting with a negative, and that's what I'd say my first takeaway was. Yeah, I mean, the Olympics are always kind of, it always feels a little bit like they're, you know, they're kind of overhyped and under deliver in some, some ways, some capacity that, that seems to be the, the, the reality of it. It's the, I mean, the Olympics in and of themselves are a bit of a paradox, right? They are this, this beautiful idea uh, in, in, in principle of bringing the nations of the world together and somewhat friendly competition and the idea of, you know, uniting through sport and all of these things. And yet, of course, there's also, you know, feverish competition and in certain fields, very, you know, um, deep and, and uh, entrenched rivalry. We all know how intense the hockey tournament gets in the Winter Olympics. There is certainly nothing cordial about it. Uh, basketball is the same way here because you have pros coming and they've got something really truly on the line. Soccer has been the same thing. Um, and we'll talk about that. But 
Yeah, that's the premise. The idea is it's this beautiful coming together of the world. And yet, you know, it's a giant media event, really. It's a giant television show. Um, and it's a huge you know, money undertaking. And I think that the challenge is whenever that much money is involved in any kind of organization, it is ripe for, you know, controversy. It's ripe for greed. It's ripe for uh, all these kind of things that tarnish the bigger overall idealism of the idea. And I think that this, because of the situation is even more of the fact this year, right? Tokyo, you know, the people of Tokyo were pretty loud and saying, we're not really sure this is a good idea. You look at the numbers in Japan, not really safe. We can say, I guess the silver lining is from a Canadian perspective, you know, there our athletes were able to get through it safely and we didn't have any reported COVID cases. That's great. Good news. We also talked, you know, on the last episode, I'm always torn on this because it's like, I feel for these athletes, they are truly dedicating themselves and the majority of them are amateurs. And this is, you know, most of these athletes are competing in sports that don't get any other coverage. You know, they have a bunch of their own tournaments throughout the year, world championships and whatever else, but no one's watching that. No, and, you know, unless your family or, or an athlete who's participated in one of these sports, but like when's the last time you tuned into a water polo game in an off season year, it's, it's just not the case. So. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I think that they set themselves up to be something bigger and, and, and not, I've got a question for you. Um, Canadian athletes did really well this year. You mentioned that, you know, there's the women's soccer team, which, you know, we can talk about that and and the building of the program up to that. But is this sort of the pinnacle? Is this the last year that we see uh, results related to all the investment that came around the Vancouver Olympics and and the, 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 the seriousness with which, um, of investment that we saw in amateur sports around 2008 and, 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 and the Olympics, um, or 18. When was Vancouver, Jordan? 2010. Yeah. yeah. So is this the, so that we're 10 years removed from that now, 11 years, I guess. Is this the last year that we see sort of that? I guess, is this the pinnacle? Do we see a, a regression after this year? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think what's hard about it is it's like, you know, whenever you have these kind of outcome based financial transactions by governments, there's always something we call tails, right? Which are like, what are the lasting connective threads from that, that, that the outcome creates? And I think the truth is, when it comes to the Olympics, the biggest tail is always the connection that younger athletes have to the people that they have looked up to and been inspired by, right? And And you look, you brought up the women's soccer team. Uh, in our second topic, we're going to dig into sort of the results and what our favorite moments were, and we'll talk about the women's soccer. But, but the women's soccer team is a great example of the legacy of a decade or more of development, and I think that that does happen, right? How many young women or how many young men are going to consider taking up swimming because they were inspired by Penny Alexiak? How many people? So yes, the money part of the well, the slogan at the time in 2010 was "Own the podium." Right. And this whole idea that it's our home games, we want to be able to. And I think that there's there's definitely still remnants of that. I think the Olympic movement in Canada is kind of it. I think it hasn't really increased or decreased in a lot of ways since that. I don't re- like I, it doesn't feel like there's this huge groundswell of people digging into those other sports. Most of the people who find these other sports are finding them because they're either legacies to them, you know, family members of swam or whatever, or because, you know, they fell into it having played a more traditional sport and we're like, Oh, you're actually really fast. Have you thought about track in this country? We don't have the kind of like development programs that a country like the States or China or one of the big sort of superpowers of Olympic 
dominance has, which is why you don't see us dominating gymnastics or something where you have to have developed a program for 40 years to really be world-class. So I don't know. Or it's you a have like question. massive college stuff too. I, yeah, I guess, right. I guess, I guess you see that. I, I guess what I'm anticipating is that money is dissipating and, but obviously, um, you know, it's flown through multiple years. Can you imagine 10 years ago, you were 17. Now you're competing now at 27, right? Like that, there, there's a lot of people that in that, in that group that, that, that connection was. So I guess just seeing that investment sort of dissolve away, uh, is this the peak particularly on summer, but you yeah, know, it's hard, I, that, that thing, it's, like, it's, right. it's hard to compare. I think the winter games and the summer games, because there's also just such different sports involved. And, you know, in Canada, the, the, the money and energy has always been in winter sports because that's, you know, we always seem to have had a much more competitive Olympic team just because of the reality of it, right? We have world-class bobsled teams year in and year out. We have world-class skeleton. Part of that legacy goes all the way back to Calgary, right? We have these yeah. world-class facilities for training because we've hosted games here. You know, you're not going to find a, you know, a world-class velodrome the way you would <laughs> in a in a city that's hosting the Olympics. You have to fund that and pay for that in a different kind of thing than when you have this sort of incentive to do it. You know? Well, Dick Pound has got a lot of work ahead of him to keep these results up. Yeah, Dick Pound. What a guy. <laughs> All right, that's topic one. We'll leave it there. Hey, guess what? The Ordinary Podcasting Network has a brand new show. If you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to enjoy the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Braden Della Coldman, who is one of the hosts of this show here, Hattrick, hosts an amazing basketball show with one of his best friends, Christian Steck. Together, the two of them will break down the NBA, news from around the basketball world, and get you caught up on everything you need to know. It's fun. It's fast. They have great conversation and banter. They love basketball, and you will love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can also follow them on Instagram at backyardbasketball underscore podcast. All right, topic two. We're going to go Canada-centric for the Olympic Games. Um, great results. We talked about it. I mentioned it in the top of the show there. 24 medals total, seven golds, six silvers, and 11 bronzes i don't have the rio numbers up but i do remember in london in 2012 we only actually won one gold it was rosie mclennan so huge improvement i suppose if you want to look at results in that way when it comes to the you know capturing the top of the podium but overall i mean just an amazing year for for canadian athletes and i you know i want we'll, we'll dig into a couple of the storylines but we have to start with soccer obviously we, we talked about it again the legacy of it what an amazing story you have you know christine sinclair who is the the you know, probably the, one of the most famous Canadian athletes outside of hockey um, to ever play her sport and is such a huge ambassador for the game. She's the all-time uh, goal scorer for international soccer, men's or women's period. She's considered by a lot of people in, around the sports community to just be an absolutely amazing ambassador for the sport, amazing ambassador of the country. She's sort of a very quiet, reserved, traditional Canadian athlete in so many ways. And yet, you know, buried underneath all of that uh, humility, you know, there is also this killer instinct and this absolutely burning, hot, competitive streak and she has wanted this gold so badly and fought so hard to get it. You know, this is the the absolute pinnacle of women's soccer. 
the toughest of losses in London, uh, losing in the semifinals after, you know, some controversial uh, refereeing and whatnot. And here she is in the twilight of her career with a much younger team and a lot, all of these players who grew up with her as their idol. And, you know, there's just, they just felt like there was something in the air going into this year that there was, this was going to be probably her last chance at this. There was something special about how this team felt. They were all in it for her and all wanted to win it for her. They have to slay the dragon in in Canada's biggest foe, the United States in the semifinal, not, you know, the exact same storyline as London semifinal against the big Americans, big bad Americans. I think they had, and beat them since 20 or 2001. I mean, that's an unbelievable streak. You know, it, what it made me think of was back in the 1980 Olympics and the miracle on ice for the Americans where they had to beat those damn Soviets and the, the Soviets were just this powerhouse who no one could beat. And just like that tournament, they met them in the semifinals. And my fear was after you beat this big, bad, you know, foe you've had for all these years in the semifinal, do you still have enough emotion to go into the finals? And what an amazing game. I don't know if you watched it live, Elliot. I was up at the crack of dawn to watch it here before going to work. And I'll tell you, it was one of the best sporting events I've ever watched live. Uh, and I felt well, so will, much emotion for I, Christine. How did you feel? I mean, I think that's that's just it, right? This is this is Sidney Crosby in Vancouver. This is Donovan Bailey. This is this is one of those Canadian sporting events uh, that will live in infamy forever. Um, Canadian Olympic sporting events that will live live in infamy, and just because of all of that, you know, just think about how long it took you to kind of get through and build that story up. Totally, everything that there's been through, like there's there's so much. And for for you and I, like I think particularly as Edmontonians, like this dates back to 2002 and the FIFA under nine women's under 19 championship that happened in Edmonton where that was where Christine Sinclair really broke onto the field. And um, it was one of the best events for introducing people to women's sport in general. It happened in, in, in 2012. And I remember, we, I think we all got tickets because we were students or it just seemed like everyone was going to 2002. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but did we get all tickets because we were at school or they did yeah, just yeah, did yeah. a hell of a job of marketing yeah. or something like that? Like this story goes back that far in terms of Christine Sinclair, the women's development program, it's all the, the culmination is all in this moment now, 18 years later yeah. um, in this gold, in this gold medal. And so I just think, you know, just because of that for me personally, but also just everything that's gone into it, this is, this is an event that everyone who watched it, um, you know, myself included, well, you'll have that experience for the rest of your life. I'm just so happy for them and so happy for the team and, and, and it was, it did, you're right. It did feel like it was just, there was something different this year, you know, like, how they got, you know, how they got into the quarters or how they got into the semis. And then obviously yeah. the game with the Americans and then, you know, probably outplayed in large places of the game by Sweden, but did manage to find a way to win, you know, like you, you, you just sort of like, it, it was just kind of meant to be. And, and yeah, just like I said, I think it's just one of those moments that we'll be, we'll remember for the rest of our lives. And, and our, you know, even our kids will be, it'll be shared with, you know, I wasn't, I don't, I wasn't old enough to remember Donovan Bailey, but I've, I, I lived that 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 clip of Donovan Bailey after he wins the race, um, you know, the, the scream as he's running, uh, you know, th- there will be a similar one from that game as well, too, whether it's uh, the goal or the save or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, that there's so many great storylines from, like you said, from the whole thing. But that game, I mean, just what a 
what a great reminder of how exciting soccer really is mm-hmm. and how exciting women's soccer is. You know, that was a tight game and it looked like the yeah. Swedes had them on the ropes and for the second game in a row, they get bailed out by VAR, which I know is controversial. And, you know, a lot of people all around the world in men's and women's soccer have had lots of games go their way and go against them because of it. And, you know, it's, it's part of the game now and it was exciting to see if, you know, have the, yeah. again, the next generation for me, just to, to, to wrap up the women's soccer storyline, you know, for me, what was so beautiful about it from a, a metaphoric storytelling narrative perspective, you know, Christine's taken out near the end of the game. Uh, Desiree Scott is taken out near the end of the game. Uh, you, Chapman is taken out near the end of the game. All of these sort of veterans who are on this team for probably the last time, having been through all of these other trips to these games and to the World Cup and hosting the Women's World Cup here in Vancouver and losing again in heartbreaking fashion. Every time they've gotten close, it's just slipped through their fingers. And you watch these women sort of step back and let the next generation say, we've got it, we'll take it from here, we'll we'll close this out for you, Christine. It's such a beautiful storyline, right? That it's like, we've got this, but in some way it's also like you built this you know what i mean her legacy is the the strength of canadian women's soccer and how dominant they have become and now the best in the world which is awesome so great storyline there let's touch on a couple other canadian stories really quickly while we're here big one again from from the perspective of you know, coming back into this game after some amazing success. Huge storyline of Rio was obviously Penny Alexiak. She's now the most decorated Canadian Olympian of all time with seven medals. Unbelievable for for someone. Again, she's like, what, 24? I mean, she's, yeah. she's a child still in so many senses, and she could be at maybe two more Olympics as a swimmer. Sometimes these guys can go for a while. Um I don't know how much swimming you watched early on. I know I watched them win the, the, the relay originally, but you know, also her legacy being, you know, some of these other, these other swimmers who were successful, you've got golds by May, Maggie McNeil in swimming. You've got a couple silver. Which is a great story. Hey, she didn't even know that she'd won it. Then she, <laughs> she couldn't you know, see like, yeah. Squid, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you've got <laughs> Kylie Massey who wins two silvers, one in the hundred yeah. meter backstroke, one in the 200 meter backstroke. These are all again, you know, like we're entering a golden age of Canadian swimming, especially on the women's side, obviously, but Penny Alexiak, uh, any thoughts on the greatest Canadian Olympian of all time coming? Out yeah. It's well, it's such an amazing story. And, and it was, I was so, proud to uh, I think everyone did a really good job of recognizing that achievement as soon as she did it as soon as, soon as she did achieve it um, uh, you know it's one of, this is how often do we think about the best tennis player in the world and not you know mention Serena or you know similarly in soccer um, we had a similar conversation uh, you know I, I think a couple months back around women not being acknowledged in their in their countries for their achievements and and so I was really pleased that it got picked up as quickly as it did. And it should be celebrated. I mean, seven Olympic medals is, is, is unbelievable. And, and um, I think that also just, I, I, I had the, I was fortunate enough to get to listen to her, some of her post um, event interviews and just talking about the challenges and the struggles of being a former gold medalist and expectation management and everything that she was dealing with. And, you know, I was just so proud and I was so impressed by the way in which uh, she handled herself, um, you, you know, talking about those challenges that she that she had experienced leading up to the games, and then obviously the, the humble, how humble she was afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, and just like, uh, you know, for me, it's a, it's not only am I proud, you know, Canadian that she won, but also just the proud that that's that's the representative of our country, and that's mm-hmm. our most decorated athlete, and that's mm-hmm. you know, those are the things that really 
that really that really matter for me and so yeah yeah absolutely and and i'd echo what you said i think that there's a really exciting future in women's in, in women's swimming um for sure and uh that's great i'm glad that women canadian women uh sports in general are having had the success that they had this year it shows that they're finally getting and it's probably not equal but more equal investment and attention from mm-hmm. our olympic committee and, and and equal access to facilities and training and funding and all those things yep. um and if canada's at the forefront of women's sports i'm very happy with that yeah let's um let's just touch on two more really quickly and then we'll leave the olympics alone because we've i think we've done a pretty good deep dive here um there were really two men, I think. Well, there were a couple of men who really succeeded for Canada, but two that really captured Canada's attention. Obviously, Andre de Grasse, who really, I think, caught everybody's attention last Olympics in Rio when he was neck and neck with Usain Bolt in the 200 meters and everyone kind of sat up and went, holy smokes, we might have another um, you know, world champion runner here in Canada after the legacy of Donovan Bailey. And Andre de Grasse, obviously, winning the gold in the 200 meter, which is his better event. He probably starts running because you know, there's a program that's being developed in this country after the legacy of Donovan Bailey, after the, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ben Johnson too, 100%. but all of that, right? No, I and totally the, agree. Yeah. One of the crazy things about Andre Degrasse, just, I know we're just yeah. touching on him. He's competed in six Olympic events and he has six Olympic medals. Yeah, it's unreal. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, he just knows how to win and he, he is fantastic. And if you watched the four by 100 meter, they were in fourth place at his handoff uh, or his his transition. He took the baton and he came all the way back up to third, which is not easy to close in a race like that. When you when you're behind going into the, the 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 anchor spot, you really have to have some some real jets and he put them on. It was amazing. Um, yeah. But the other really crazy story, I think, that surprised a few people uh, was uh, Damian Warner, who won the men's decathlon which is considered again one of the most difficult um sports in the olympics it's considered the, the you know the the world's best athlete coming out of it you have the me- world's fastest man in the 100 meters and the world's fastest male athlete or the best male athlete coming out of the decathlon because you've got to have all 10 skills um he was fifth in london he won the bronze in rio so it's not like he came out of nowhere people saw him coming but like andre de Grasse, i think people still were shocked by how much of an improvement there was in that four plus five years um, he scored 8,995 points. I'm not exactly sure how the scoring works, but I do know. This. No, I thought it was, I thought he was in the 9,000s. No, he, he was, 9, no, no, I would just look this up. Cause he's, he was five points away from the 9,000. So he finished with 8,995. Had he got those extra five points, he would have been the only the fourth ever. So again, just the, the level of success by this young man set, uh, a Canadian record for the event. And again, just like unbelievable performance. And one of those that will go down in the record books is just, you know, a, a, a truly special moment for Canadian athletics. Well, also in a time in which it was hard enough to find facilities and space and coaching, if you were, if you were preparing for one event, let yeah. alone trying to prepare during the uh, pandemic for 10 separate events. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was outstanding. I, 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 um, uh, just, just, just so ecstatic for him. It's too bad he didn't break the nine thousand. I think I, when I watched him, they initially thought that he had. So, but anyway, yeah, regardless of that, he was just short. It, it says he was just short, but unbelievable, right? I mean, just, just what a, what a finish for him. And uh, um, I'm just really proud of the guy from London, Ontario. Which is funny too, because I think like six or seven of the medalists were from from London, Ontario. Something like a quarter of all medalists were from London, really? Ontario. So something that. in the water there. Uh, for sure, but they're producing Olympians right now. 
Um, any last thoughts on the Olympics now that it's, it's done and dusted? I, I guess I would say, you know, so the medal account is great and that's outstanding. It's our highest one, as you mentioned, and things like that. But, but you know, there's also the gentleman that finished, I think, fifth in the decathlon behind yep. Warner too. And, um, uh, you know, the gal that was running the 400 meters or, and doing the hurdles and things like that. There was lots of, there, it felt like there's a lot of top tens for Canada this year too. Yep. It'd be interesting to go back and kind of get that, get the sense of like, um, because, uh, you know, medals are and the podium are the thing that we always keep track of. But I'm interested in how many top tens because it felt like there was a lot of Canadians. Um, well, never mind. There were two men running the 200 meter sprint for yep. Canada, right? Yep. Like that's something that made the final. That, both of them yep. that made that's the crazy. final. Right. So. Yep. So, I, you know, I think it speaks to an infrastructure that now exists in Canadian athletics. That's really exciting. And that's, that was really demonstrated in these games, too. So that was that's my final note. That I, that I want yeah. To and I, I would just say, I think we talked about it. It's like, should these games have even happened? All of those question marks that existed. And I think the truth is it's like, you know, they were going to happen regardless. I think the, the Olympic movement is such a large and, and, you know, robust machine that eventually it was, it was bound to sort of shove its way through. Not, you know, like every other major sport we've seen, finding a way to do it. We can, we can litigate the morality of it later if we want, but the truth is, you know, I thought it, it it probably was a slightly more subdued Olympic um, summer than we've had in the past. I think Canada didn't really get as revved up as they have in the past, but I think the success helps with that. They got excited because they kept seeing results. It's always tough. The other thing, just the reality of it, that soccer game was at 5 a.m. It is incredibly tough when the primetime lineup is on the wrong side of the clock, right? Because you're in the far parts of the world and, and you know, we can, that's just the reality of it, right? We know that. We remember it from Nagano. We remember it from Beijing. We're going to see Beijing again in a couple months here when we go back for the winter games. The truth is it's hard scheduling-wise to to make these these games sort of fit into people's schedules. So you're kind of following along either by waking up in the morning and, and finding out what medals you've won and whatever uh, and maybe PVRing and trying to, to get it. That's tough. But the reality is, you know, wow. I think people did get excited as they kept seeing these great results and we had some really cool storylines. So I think in the end, success for Canada is, is you know, is, is what it is. And, and uh, the games happened and there we go. Paralympics in a couple weeks. All right, we'll leave it there. Do you or someone you know own a small business? Are you looking to grow or to reach new customers? Hey, why not let us help? Hattrick is looking for unique brands, businesses, and products to advertise on our show. You can find out how we can help spread the word about your business by contacting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All right, we're going to leave the Olympics there. Our third topic today is dedicated to a very niche sport. No, that's not really fair, but it feels like it is. More and more, Elliot, it feels niche. Yeah. Uh, the CFL is back. Uh, for anyone who has been paying attention and, and, and cares, it has been a very long time since CFL football was played in this country. Two years because they have not had a season. They did not. Only major sport, in, if you can call it major, only major sport in Canada that didn't have a season of some kind. You know, the Blue Jays had to go play in the States. The Raptors had to go play in the States. But the Canadian Football League, even though it's isolated by border and doesn't have, you know, the same kind of trouble, they just didn't have the money to make it work and they didn't make it work. So they had to wait a year. They finally get back off the ground already we're seeing positive COVID tests so that that's a whole sidebar truth is CFL is back and after a year and a half to rebrand and retool and prepare themselves boy oh boy they kind of came out flat how do we feel Elliot about the CFL being back did you watch any of the games and um yeah just general thoughts I guess we'll start so it was weird I was actually very excited for the CFL to come back uh for the first time and I think 
uh, a good while, five or six years. And, you know, people who listen to the show for a long time. And Jordan, you know this. My grandfather was a season ticket holder and regularly took me. And I have a real, real connection to the uh, the former Edmonton football team, now Edmonton Elks, um, and really know the game and actually love the game and really understand it. And so, but in the last six years, I'd really struggled. Part of it was some of the, some of it was around the name of the team that I supported. Uh, some of it was just that it, like the poor quality of, of how the game is presented on television. And some of it was just, you know, interest moved to other places. For the first time, I was excited for Canadian football to be back. And I think a two-year hiatus was good for me in that it sort of reminded me that, you know, this is, there, there's value here and this is something that I want to, to follow. So all in all, I'm really, really, really happy that um, the CFL's back. More happy than I expected to be. There's also this renewed sort of sense of interest and in that, like, I have no guilt in cheering for the team because of this. I'm not going to encounter this, like, moral dilemma around their inappropriate name anymore. Like, the Elks are the Elks now. We no longer have to deal with that anymore. And I and for me, there was there was sort of a guilt kind of lifted off me in that as well, too. And I, I'm an Elks supporter again, and that's okay, and that's good, and I... I don't have to deal with like a stupid name conversation, not a stunt that the conversation itself is stupid, but that it's stupid that we have to deal with it every year because no one was dealing with the situation. Um, so that was a lot of stuff really fast, but I, I ultimately, I was like really excited for this weekend. Um, and then we could talk about whether the weekend delivered or not later. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wish I held your enthusiasm. I really don't. I, I wanted so badly to care i wanted so badly to like want it to be good because i like you have felt yeah i haven't watched cfl football in probably three or four years i mean include like beyond the pandemic because i think once i had sort of resolved my own issues around the team and i kind of accepted that i was really uncomfortable with it as a name i tuned out i i chose not to give them my eyeballs and my my money and you know i used to go to uh, a lot of games, not like, you know, I was never, I, I actually, that's not true. As a younger person, my parent, my father used to buy season tickets uh, at Commonwealth and we used to go each game, he would take a different kid. So we'd all three of us as brothers would get a different number of games through the year, you know, two or three each, but that hadn't happened in a long time. And then once I moved to Vancouver, I used to occasionally go to a game when they played here at BC place, but that hadn't happened in a few years either. I just had sort of tuned out and disengaged. And I remember feeling a couple years ago, like, ah, I kind of miss football the way I, you know, because I used to really enjoy it. I think this length of time just sort of, I kind of lost it. And I really wanted to be able to say, all right, I'm back because you've, you know, this is such an affirmative thing you've done. I want to be here to support that. I watched probably the first 15 minutes of that football game. And then I went on to other things. I was so bored. I was so disengaged and I couldn't have cared. And it was frustrating because I really wanted to. And I don't know if it was the presentation from TSN I don't know if it was the game itself. Maybe it's well, the fact that I didn't it, care yeah. about those players anymore because I didn't really know who they were. You know, last time I cheered for the team it was still like Mike Riley played for them or something. Right. I didn't. I didn't even know who the, the coach was for the team. To be completely honest with you, and I was just so disengaged. And I think what's frustrating for me is also like a, you know, armchair media critic of sports media and someone who's a big fan of presentation. Like you had a year off TSN. 
get your act together and get this game to feel and look like the 21st century. But it felt like they hadn't, they picked up right where they'd left off. The only change in the graphics package was the new logo. The only change in like the, you know, the lineup at halftime was that Kate Burness was hosting it because what's his name is Rod Black or whatever his name is, is now a commentator. I just didn't care. And I thought it was well, just and Paul uh, police poor... has left as well too, to go yeah, and coach. It was just yeah, a no, poor uh, relaunch. Let me put it. So way. I think it, your it last point flat. there, I think your last point there is, is well made. I think I think you picked a tough game to re-enter into the CFL. At a 16-12, um, there was no offensive touchdowns the entire yeah. game. Actually, inter- amazingly, Edmonton had 24 first downs, I think, to Ottawa's six the entire game. But it was just simply because of the turnovers that the game was uh, – the, the, uh, the Elks lost that game. But, you know, so I think some of this, Jordan, just keep in mind, like, tough game to enter back into – um, and a tough way for the CFL season to sort of end its first week. But sure. I do agree yeah, with sure. you around presentation. Virtually nothing is changed. Even their capacity to use technology. It's still that like yellow squiggly line that like they're drawing on the screen that like at one point they were like circling the score and I was killing myself laughing like oh yeah yeah we'll use the yellow marker on the screen to signify that the score is important in this game but you know like they were trying there was at one point to play in which um uh the red blacks attempted like a lateral off a kickoff um yeah, and it, you know there was, a, there was a conversation around whether it was a forward pass or a backward pass yeah. and the camera angles that they were able to generate couldn't even sufficiently like demo yeah. they couldn't even pull a package together that significantly yeah. demonstrated one way or another whether it was a forward pass or not yeah. and 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 it ultimately was ruled that it was and i think it was too but like they couldn't even pull a package of shots together like yeah. what's a different angle what's something that we can be doing the graphics is you know mentioning that is a like invest in but but this is the thing when you have a monopoly over the coverage of a league then your quality of the coverage falls apart. And that's always been the issue with the CFL. And two years removed, it continues to be a problem. Yeah. That's the problem. No, totally. And the truth is also like, you know, we've talked about what's the potential of the XFL helping in some way with the CFL. The the, the CFL is stuck in so many ways as a brand because they are run by people from a different generation than the modern generation of fans. The modern generation of fans is getting older and it's not getting younger. And the reason it's not getting younger is that younger people are going to the NFL because it's a superior product. It's a superior presentation. It's only going to get better now that you've got Amazon and all these competing networks. And that is true, right? Because you have like five networks that all own coverage and if one of them tries something different, the other guys have to be, you know, competing with them. You've got right. TSN with the Monopoly in this country, which I get there's eight, like what, an eight team league? Like I get that, that we're dealing with a different thing. But what the CFL doesn't, I think, understand is that they are not the only game in town. They may think they are because it's the Canadian Football League and they're the only teams playing in these cities. But the truth is you are always competing with the NFL because the NFL is the standard for football. It is the standard for football coverage. It is the standard for what that broadcast looks like. And that is what you are competing with. And like you just pointed out, those camera angles, the expectation of fans is so much higher in terms of what they're seeing. And if you're going to try to bring new fans to your game, you have to meet them where they have already built an expectation. Young fans I think are more engaged in the NFL because of fantasy sports, because of like online betting and all of these things that are making that game way more fun, even if they don't have a quote unquote home team, um, because 
it's just it's just a bigger thing. And I realize you're never going to be able to compete with the NFL, but you have to at least try to meet them partway there and, and figure out what are the key pieces of that that are going to solve this problem. And then what, what is are, your brand even supposed your, to be? Because I, I feel the like the CFL's is, lost the plot. They don't know who the, they yeah, are. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. The, the, the conversation is not necessarily like we need to emulate the NFL because I think that's actually what they're trying to do, but just with a smaller budget and they're doing it really poorly. Uh, what is your market differentiator? Yeah. What's the thing that makes you different? Um, there's lots of things about the CFL. You know, when the CFL was really kicking ass in the 90s and early 2000s, what were they talking? It's three down football. It's fast. There's no fair catch. Uh, bigger field, extra man, shorter play clock. Things are happening. Yeah, the faster. game moves. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was all these things that sort of those were your market differentiators, right? And that made it. That, and and not only that, but there's nothing a Canadian loves more than than tr- attempting to like providing a product that's different from the Americans and could be better. Not that I'm saying the CFL is, but, you know, building that sort of pride within your, within your market and within your base. And they've totally lost that. I think that, yeah, honestly, I think you're so right about on so many parts from that. And I think you, you don't have to, you're right. You can't compete with the NFL. You just don't have the money. You don't have the audience. You don't have the number of teams. Like that's, that's not, that's not where you need to be, but you need to be able to de- 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 decipher that market differentiator. And and here's another year where everyone's saying that to the CFL and everyone's saying that to TSN and we get the same effing product um, with just like more culturally appropriate team names. Yeah. All right. That's our show for this week. We will leave it there. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate you uh, showing up. and uh it was fun um we'll we'll be back next week with uh, another episode of the hat trick sports podcast thank you for listening follow us on instagram twitter and facebook and uh, have a good week that was hat trick hat trick is a member of the ordinary podcasting network it's produced every week by jordan dollar coltman and brayden dollar coltman and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 Territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations and we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live create and share stories on these territories the ordinary podcasting network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination but a journey and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space